It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The World in 10, the big news stories of the day, explained and analysed by The Times of London. Today, with me, James Hansen. On today's episode, we explore the unanswered questions behind Alexei Navalny's death. There's still lots we don't know about the death of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. His team claim he was murdered on the personal order of Vladimir Putin and say his body is being withheld by Russian authorities. Today's Sunday Times reports claims from human rights activists that two days before Navalny was pronounced dead, Russian intelligence officers visited the Arctic prison where he was being held and disconnected security cameras and listening devices. Peter Conradi is the Sunday Times Europe editor. Essentially, there is a website called Gulagu Net, which kind of its name comes from uh, the word Gulag, obviously for, for Russian prison camps. And this has been sort of set up by various uh, anti-Putin activists. And they claim to have seen a report from the local prison service. And this report claims that Two days before he died, i.e. on Wednesday, there was a visit by officers from the FSB, the Domestic Security Service, and they went about disconnecting a number of CCTV cameras and listening devices that there were at the camp. So that, that's one element, I suppose, in this puzzle. Why on earth did the FSB officers come there? A second element that they've pointed out is the extraordinary speed with which Navalny's death was announced to the world, because officially he died at 2.17 local time on Friday, which was uh, 9.17 British time. Within a couple of minutes of that, there was a press release already written and sent out by the prison service. A few minutes after that, a website with links to Russian authorities put out the line that he'd died of a, of a blood clot, which was later clarified to be sudden death syndrome. And then a few minutes after that, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, was already commenting about his death to Russian media. And, you know, the, things just don't happen that quickly. So how could that have happened? Then another report came out, an inmate, an unnamed inmate at the jail spoke to another independent Russian media outlet called Novia Gazeta, he claimed, in fact, that prisoners had been told already at 10 o'clock that morning, i.e. four hours before Navalny was meant to have died, 
that he was dead. And he reported some other suspicious stuff having gone on, on at the camp, that they'd all been locked in, in in a way they wouldn't normally have been the evening before. He again reported a visit by FSB officials, although in this case it was a day later, according to his account. You know, it's it's all extraordinarily murky. And then you throw into that the fact that when Navalny's mother, Lyudmila, went yesterday in search of his body. She went to the, the morgue in a town called Salakhard, which is the nearest town to the camp. She was told that the body wasn't there. That's Peter Conradi, the Sunday Times Europe editor. Next Saturday will mark the two-year anniversary of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. And whilst much of the reporting has come from the Ukrainian side of the front line, one filmmaker and war journalist has gone behind enemy lines. Between fall 2022 and spring 2023, Sean Langan embedded himself along the Russian front line, filming for his documentary, Ukraine's War, The Other Side. Sean's written about his experience for the Sunday Times magazine and joins me now, Sean, Thank you so much for joining us on The World in 10. How were you able to get such amazing access? It took six months of applying for you know, accreditation and media visa. And crossing into Russian-occupied Ukraine from Russia, I was aware that I was not only really entering at the kind of like the dark side of the moon in terms of, you know, as journalists, because there were so few there, but also a political minefield. So the Russians, various authorities were suspicious, you know, even though I'd been granted this media visa. But one thing I found true of all war zones across the world is that the closer you are to the front line, the more fluid things become, the less control. And in fact, if you if you manage to get there, soldiers in foxholes, trenches, they're much harder to control by all militaries and governments in the world. And Sean, tell me about the Russian soldiers you met. What was your impression of them? I think what's interesting for me was that everything I'd read in the Western media is both correct, but then you're on the ground and you, you get another snapshot. So I met lots of young Russian soldiers who were volunteers, not conscripts, and the question of low morale, you know, I met them, I was in a town, a place called Svatova in November 22, just after the Russians had been routed in Izium and Liman in the Eastern Front, and they pulled back. So a lot of the soldiers I met had been in those battles. But the idea of low morale in the West is very different to low morale in Russia, I think. You know, the Russian soldiers just keep going. And I think in a way... The idea of low morale was slightly misleading because it implies perhaps this is Putin's war, not Russia's war, and at any moment they could collapse. And I think what we're seeing is that they will keep going as they have throughout history. Aside from the Russian soldiers that you met, Sean, was there anything else that differed from the perception that we get of the war in the West? One thing that did surprise me was we see the Russian media, the state propaganda or the pro-Kremlin TV. But what did surprise me is that the Russian soldiers themselves didn't take that at face value. And so, you know, as one soldier said to me, a young soldier who was a volunteer, and they were telling me, you know, we're not victims of propaganda, or, you know, we know what's happening. 
but they you know they were still they're still there despite having some of the highest attrition rates on the eastern front believed in their struggle whether they will still believe that in years to come is another question you know i could see the fatigue in their eyes but it was also what really struck me was the civilians not just the front lines you know the the people living in donetsk under daily fire, but going about their normal lives. That stayed with me perhaps as much, if not more, than the front line. And Sean, there is this idea now that the war is is maybe starting to turn back in Russia's favour. One of the places you filmed in Avdivka has fallen to the Russians this week. What is your view of the war now? We're beginning to see in, in the media headlines today how this is a, a long war, that the Russians have proved themselves much more resilient than perhaps we thought they might be. Sadly, nothing's changed from what I saw when I was on the ground. But I think there's been a slight delay in the media kind of really acknowledging what's happening. But at the same time, I'd like to also say that one thing I saw the other, you know, the last week, Tucker Carlson in America, slightly accusing the Western media of not portraying the full facts, well, the truth. You know, I am very much mainstream Western media and all the reports I've seen in the Western media have been factually correct. Sean, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Now, movie award season continues tonight with the British Academy Film Awards, or BAFTAs, taking place in London. Oppenheimer leads the way with 13 nominations, including for Best Film, Best Actor for Killian Murphy and Best Director for Christopher Nolan. Nolan's been speaking to our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times. In a conversation with the Sunday Times film critic Tom Schoen, he explained how the ending for Oppenheimer came to him in a dream. In the case of Oppenheimer, the entire sort of last couple of minutes of the film, those last few scenes, sort of came to me as I was falling asleep one night. And I, I've learned over the years that if you have a great idea in the middle of the night, you really have to just get up and go and write it. So I did. I went went down to my mm-hmm. office and sat there and wrote it out longhand. And fortunately, the next morning I could still read my handwriting. It still made sense. It wasn't some you know half-assed dream I'd had. It actually worked. That's Christopher Nolan speaking to the Sunday Times film critic Tom Schoen. You can get inside the making of Oppenheimer and hear about the disaster that struck Nolan three weeks into editing Inception on our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times. It's available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, just before I go, some surprising news in the world of tennis. The world number two and Wimbledon champion Carlos Alcaraz has failed to reach the final of the Argentina Open. The 20-year-old was defeated in Buenos Aires by Chile's Nicolas Yari. Despite losing the second set and a close first set, the Chilean was able to claw his way back, breaking the reigning champion serve four times. Nicolas Yari will face Argentina's Diaz Acosta in today's final. Thanks for taking 10 minutes to stay on top of the world with the help of the Times of London. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.